All right, everyone, come on back in. I was just mentioning that without music in the background, uh, it totally feels weird. It's like a it's like a very quiet, holy Catholic church, except without the candles and the awesome architecture. So um, maybe we have something to learn from the from the Catholic church, at least only in that respect. That that'd be that'd be glorifying to God. All right, good morning. Um, I'm going to begin today's sermon, today's final sermon in that by design sermon series that we've been in for the last several months. I've elected not to kind of do the reading of the word and have prayer. I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to preach. And there's, there's, that's the first out of step, out of character thing, out, out, of, out of pattern and have, habit thing about today's message. The other thing is I've elected to just we're not put notes up on the screen. Not that I love, that those are helpful, those are good. Um, if you would like to see the sermon manuscript, the notes that I'm working from today, if there's something that you want to remember or there's a scripture reference that you want to go back and look at for yourself, great, terrific. Uh, we, th- those can be shared with you. I, I, I'm never hiding or concealing those. Those aren't secret documents. Um, but I just wanted to sit and focus on hearing and listening the word of God uh, and asking the Lord to just like do transformative, renewing work uh, in us in, in just in a, in a unique way today. And sometimes you don't get new or different or unique things by doing the things that you always do, all right? So just a little bit of a heads up. Let me, let me pray. Would you pray with me? Ask the Lord for help. Father, we pray today on the heels of a week that we here in our culture call Thanksgiving. Lord, uh, on the heels of that, Lord, I, I pray that you would not let the end of that particular holiday season uh, end our sense of gratitude and thankfulness. Uh, and Lord, we are most ungrateful when we are most forgetful. So Lord, as we hear from your word today, would you, would you renew us? Would you remind us? Would you reorient us uh, as, as remembering and grateful people who are thankful? Would you show us yourself? Show us how good and how awesome and how significant and how powerful and how loving you are? And would you show us how you feel about us? We, we are in desperate need, Lord. We are all in desperate need of knowing that someone will unfailingly, always, perfectly committed, perfectly capable, and totally, totally ready to love us and approve us and accept us, to know us as we are, with no secrets, and yet still love us and want us. So, Lord, show us yourself today in your word, and show us how you feel about us for, for our good, for our safety, for our peace, for our lives and our, our future, and for your glory. Amen. All right. So, every week we begin these sermons in this series by getting a, pic, getting a hold of the big picture, which is this by design series starts with this premise, this presupposition that the whole universe, our bodies, laws of science, things that we can see and observe and understand, all the all the animals and plants and birds, everything, about everything that works, visible and invisible, it all reveals a very clear pattern, a very clear and orderly design. And if it's got a design, then logically, rationally, there's a designer, all right? The universe has a design, therefore it's got a designer. And when human beings, when we reject the design, when we decide that we can come up with a better alternative, to how things are supposed to go in our lives in this world, or if we think we can, in the very least, create an equally good alternative to what the designer designed. If we reject his design, we are re- rejecting the designer himself. We offend him, we insult him, and we tell him 
we don't want you to be who you are and what you who you are and, and who you are as you offer yourself to us. What's, what's this relate? We don't want you. And so we reject him. And the natural outcome, the natural fruit of that is we end up messing up, we end up wrecking everything around us in this universe, our bodies, our relationships, our homes, our jobs, the very planet itself. We end up wrecking everything and we end up ruining ourselves and one another. We end up hurting each other. But the very thing that human beings, every human being, whether you're Christian or not, you, many of you know non-Christian people. You have atheist friends or agnostic friends or maybe loved ones or family members. Even those people, you know, and this, by the way, this, this may be, very well be the doorway some of you need to know to enter into conversations with lost people that you know and love is to go, what you are seeking, the approval you're seeking, the peace that you're seeking, the, the significance or the purpose of your life or the meaning for your life, the, the healing, the friendship, the love, the acceptance, the provision, the protection, the safety that you're looking for, I want you to know that you're not wrong for looking for it. You were created and designed to be hungry in that way and to need it and you feel it. You're not wrong for wanting that. I'm just telling you, I am confident that you're looking in the wrong place. You're digging for gold in a place that doesn't have any treasure. Would, would you trust me as I love you? I'm, I've, I'm finding the very thing I need, and I know that source, the source of living water, would you, would you let me share that with you? Every human being, when they find the very baseline source of life, of meaning, of order, of design, when, they, when we find it in God, who is the designer, that's when those things start to flow. Those, that's when those things start to show up. Not the fullness of it, not the perfection of it in this life. This is not prosperity gospel. That if you do these things, believe these things, then your life will automatically be better. No, no. That's not the story of the Bible. But now, now you have access to the well of that living water. And you have the promise and the guarantee from that designer that the fullness of that will come to you. Because he's going to come to you one day. So today is the final sermon. Last week, uh, last week was kind of the right hand of these two sermons. This is the left hand. Last week was, what is God designed for the church? What, what are we supposed to be? What has God designed us to be? And today, we want to look at, what is God's design for the church to do? What is God's design for the church to do? So I've got, I've got now, again, two kind of bifurcating, kind of parallel paths to walk with you today in, in, in this message. When we talk about what has God designed his church, the global church, as a whole, and each local unique body of Christians that we call Lower Sea Church. Uh, here's how I want to describe this, these two paths. It's the, it's the short and the tall. It, it's the tiny and the large. It's the small um, and the great spectrum of what the church is meant to be and do. God has, in the very least, God has a minimum design for his church. There's the minimum path, and he also has, at the very greatest, a maximum design for his church. Both are perfect because they're God's design, and both please him because those, this is his design. But there is a minimum view and vision of God's design for the church and what we're supposed to do, what this is supposed to be like and, and feel like and look like. Uh, and, and then there's a, this maximum. So let me, let me start with that minimalistic side. Uh, a minimalistic design 
for what the church is to do. Uh, I, I, I have regularly, not stolen, but uh, sometimes stolen by accident, but I regularly quote and cite and borrow from a, a great preacher. Uh, many of you have heard of him, listened to a bunch of his stuff, John Piper. Uh, and this one was just too good. It's, it's so simple and succinct, um, which is weird if you've ever read any of his books, right? He's definitely the kind of preacher you go back and have to listen to the last four minutes again or go back and read the last four pages just to make sure you understood what he was saying. But here, here's what I want to offer you. I think, I think this is good. A, a local church, this is, this is God's design, the minimalist view. A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ. And they meet to be exhorted or encouraged and taught from the word of God, the Bible, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper, all under the guidance of duly appointed godly leaders. I'll, I'll say it again. That would be really confusing on the screen. It's a long run on sentence, but it's, it's so concise and simple. A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ. So they can be exhorted and taught and encouraged from the Bible, and so they can celebrate the Lord's Supper all under the guidance, the leadership of duly appointed qualified leaders. I want to take that sentence and just break it down. Here, here's, the minimal, here's the minimal design. If you want to understand minimally what you've got to do, what we've got to do and be in order to confidently say, yes, we are a church. By, we, we are living as a church by God's design. It, it's, it's seven things. Number one, we got to be Christians. Christians aren't, uh, non-Christians don't make the church. Non-Christians aren't members of churches. Christians are members of the church because Christians are God's people. So if, you're, if this is a church, then we have to be made up of not only Christians, we have to be made up of Christians as membership. By God's grace, we might start having in our assembly non-Christians or unchurched or de-churched Christians, but uh, there ought to be to be a church, there needs to be a credible, observable evidence that each of us are really believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we bear the marks of an adopted son or daughter. There needs to be observable evidence, something that gives us confidence that we, one another, really do believe in Jesus, something that other people can see and testify to. It doesn't prove that you are a Christian, to me, to you, but it, it brings us a certain level of appropriate confidence that, yeah, I, I can trust what this person says about their life in Christ, that they are a Christian, because I can see that their life matches up with his word, with what they say they believe. Number two, you have, we, have to, we have to baptize. We have to be baptized. Public, confessional, symbolic, joyfully unembarrassed entry into the church. This is Matthew chapter 28. This is Jesus' own, his own pattern of saying, when someone becomes a Christian, they're in my family. And for them to enter in and publicly and privately be part of my family, here's the initiation. Here is the activity. The first, generally, ought to be like, let's say the first act of obedience of a brand new born Christian is to go, I will follow Jesus. He got baptized. I will get baptized. He said it. I'll do it. That we are to say, you are in the kingdom because you now believe in Jesus and profess his name. Now you're in the church with us because we baptize you or we recognize your baptism. Number three, if we're going to be a church, God's designed for us, what are we going to do? 
we have to assemble. We must regularly assemble. Regularly assemble. Not periodically assemble. Not from time to time assemble. Right? Not Avengers assemble only when things are bad. And now we're expecting the church to swoop in through all the Doctor Strange portals because my life is a wreck. So Avengers assemble. The whole church comes to my life and takes care of it. No. Right? It's every day. Like every day, every week, regular as a rhythm of our normal pattern of life. You see the variety there's a variety of essential, necessary activities that God gives to the church, to his people. Activities, things we are to do. And these essential activities, these things that the church is meant to do and be, they lose their meaning, they lose their value without regular and consistent and committed togetherness. You start to... You start to lose the value. You start to forget the meaning because you're not feeling it. You're not experiencing it. You're not participating in it. You're not with other people who are participating and experiencing it. And so you start to forget the feeling of what it's like to be in that warmth. Something I alluded to last week. For any of us who are either in a season where it's, it feels cold to be in this relationship with the Lord, it feels cold possibly, you're, you're feeling of distance or, or just coldness with, with a, your church or if you've ever felt that. I, I said this last week, just go back and think. Think and remember a season or time, a period in which you felt the warmest, the most inside, the most, ah, oh, this is the church. I'm so glad I'm part of this. I'm so thankful. This is, this is, the, best, this is the best organization, the best thing, the best thing God has created for us. And uh, oh, I love the church and the church. Oh, it's clear God loves me through his church. To go back to those times where you're feeling those things and thinking those things, I can almost always guarantee that those in those seasons, you were feeling that way because you were regularly assembling. You were committed and participating, and you weren't thinking about first what you were getting. You were thinking about what you have gotten and what you now are to give from the Lord to one another. I feel so cold. Go back to the fire. Go back to the fire. Get close to the fire. That's where you get warm. I'd like the fire to come to me. Fire has come, and sometimes a, sometimes a coal comes out. And, 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 but listen, you've got it. You've, the fire only comes to you to draw you back over to where the fire is, right? So we must regularly assemble. Indeed, there are, I'll even say this, there are plenty of commands that you as a Christian can't obey unless you're actively assembled and participating in the local church. And if you are in a position where you can't obey and, it, and you can't because it, it is because of decisions or life patterns you've, you've, you've made, that's disobedience, right? For my son to put himself in a position where he can't obey me and he put himself in that position, not, not someone else doing something to him, not circumstances out of control, but when he's made a decision that puts him in a place where now he can't do what I've told him to do, that's still disobedience. His hands are tied, but he's the one who tied the knot. And so there are many commands that if you're not participating and close to the fire, regularly gathering and assembling with the body, then there's a slew of commands that you're disobeying because you can't obey them. And your hands are tied because... You tied them. I tied my hands, right? Number four, we, as the church, we gather and assemble for the primary purpose, primarily to worship God. 
That's why, we, that's why we gather. That's why we do ministry. That's why we have community groups. That's why we have songs. That's why we have a building. That's why I, I preach. That's why you listen. That's why you have a Bible. That's why there's supposed to be Bible studies. That's why we pray. Because the assembled church in its small versions or in its bigger versions, this, the corporate gathering, we are gathered in everything we do primarily for the worship of God. In all the activities of the church, we assemble together to worship God, to praise him, to magnify him, to enjoy him, and to encourage one another to do so and have that. So, like, listen, there's a good reason why I, I'm consistently, for years, I've been saying, all right, we're, the preaching is done, now we're going to sing another song or two. So we're going to sing, hopefully, louder, right? That's not to satisfy me and make me feel better as a pastor because the church at least sounds and seems like it's a more exciting place. That's not, ab it's not about me feeling more excited and better about us as a church because these people really sing. No, it's, it's because that's for us, for, for, for you. That's for you and for others who need you. It's because God, in our worship, he's the object of our worship and he's the subject of our worship. What, what that means is when we worship God, let's say in song, in prayer, in any way, but let's, in song, when we sing, you have an audience in heaven, and his name is Jesus. He's on the throne. His name is God the Father. His spirit dwells in you. You are singing to him. Now, there's something nice and kind of 90s-ish that sounds very spiritual and, and kind of cool, happy, hippie, Jesus movement kind of thing that, that was like being said all the time in the 90s when I was in high school and then in college uh, in the worship. Uh, yeah, I sing for an audience of one. We worship for an audience of one. I mean, that's only partly true. God is the object of your worship. I am worshiping him. I'm not worshiping anyone else. I'm not worshiping the church or the worship team or the band or the light or the fog machine. Any, I'm worshiping God. I'm, he's the object of my worship. But for Christians, if we are the church, God's designed for us in our prayer, in our fellowship, in our meals, in our bread breaking, in our ministry, out in the community trying to do and good, good things for people, in all of it, God is also the subject of our worship. Meaning, I'm not just singing to God and worshiping to God. I'm singing to you about God. And I don't know on any given Sunday who around me really needs someone around them who is convinced this morning that Jesus is worthy. I don't know who might need just to know that someone else has that confidence and they need to be able to come to the table and like just share, share and have some of that that God gives to me and just have that for me because they don't have it themselves. To stir one another up. That's in the Bible that we are to gather together so we can stir up one another's affections for the Lord. So we worship primarily and all that we do is the church to honor and praise God and to encourage one another, to build one another up, to share at our table of faith and hope with others who may today find their table feeling pretty empty, and the Lord, the Lord put us together so that no one goes without. Number five, if we're going to be a church, again, th these are the minimum things. This is the minimum definition and view of what a church is supposed to be and do. Number five, we we're going to have to center our nourishment, our life nourishment on God's word. 
You're not a church if the central nourishment and the, and the building and establishing philosophy or truths don't come from essentially and if they aren't bound by God's, God's word. It's not a church if the central thing that guides your life, the central thing that you are taught to believe, encouraged to profess, or even expected to obey or live according to, if that's not from God's word and bound by God's word, that's not a church. It's not a church if, if what is offered is good advice. It's only a church if what is offered is good news, the gospel. It's the very word of God that brings the new life. And that very word from God, because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, it's that very word that gave you your new, regenerated, born-again Christian life. That's the very word that sustains you in your life, that nourishes you, that doesn't just keep you alive, but builds you up, keeps you going. See, we can share we can share our physical bread and fill each other's bellies at one another's tables and fire pits. We can share our money with one another and meet each other's felt needs. We can share so much. But without the bread of life that we are eating from and sharing with one another to fuel, to, to heal, to redeem, to renew one another, if it's not the bread of life, the Bible, then we will still truly starve and die and be miserable all the way through. Our thoughts and our feelings need to be shaped and then reshaped by the word. The, the only encouragement that can truly do for you what you need encouragement to do, that can only come from the mouth of God. Me telling you, you I mean, you are my friends, and I, it's not hard for me. That, that this is a gift, it's not... It's in me, but it's not from me. It's from God, and he put it in me. But it's a thing that he wired me to be this way. It's not hard for me to find authentically something. I don't have to create something. It's not hard for me to find something authentic that I really mean that I love about you, that I'm ready to promote and tell and share everyone else about how great you are. This thing about you, that's priceless. You're unique, and I mean it. I'm not flattering you. I'm not lying. I'm not trying to get anything from you. That's not hard for me to do. And so, yes, it is good, and I ought to and must, you must join me to say, hey, I love you, I believe in you. You're cared for. You're good at this. You're a wonderful person here. Things can get better. We can get help. This, this won't always be this way. We can say those things, and they're not valueless, but here's the deal. That's not going to do for you what you need true encouragement to do from you, because it's not coming from the Word in the mouth of God. I have very, very few promises I can make to you, and even those promises are pretty faulty and shaky. But if you need encouragement and you need a promise that will sustain you, just keep you a Christian, a, a promise that will keep you from going crazy or losing all hope, the only promises that can be made that you can, like, that you can receive that will do, they only come from here. They're only, they're only promises only God can make. That's got to be the central and only taproot and vine and source of our life nourishment is the word of God. Number six 
If you're going to be a church, you've got to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is the regular, faithful, necessary pattern that Jesus himself gives to his church. Why? He says, you need to remember me. When you get together, remember me. Why do we need to be told that? Because we forget him. All the time. Greatest commandment. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How are you doing this morning? If it depends on your obedience to the greatest commandment for you to enter the kingdom when you stop breathing, how are you doing? Are you getting in? Based off of just this morning? I don't just got doubts. I have zero confidence that I'm getting in based just this morning based off of my ability to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, everything. And I'm the pastor here. I'm up here. You told me to, you guys pay me to like open this and say stuff. If it depends on me, I forget him. And so we take communion as a church regularly to remember who he is and what he's done and who he says we are, lest we forget. That's why we do it all the time. Uh, this is not a, uh, there's no debate in here uh, that there's no, there's no strict rule that like, just solves it forever for all churches and all times and places that we, Restoration City Church, who do it every Sunday without fail, and the particular way we do it, we're the ones who do it right. I, we believe, or your church leadership believes, that this is maybe not the right way, but this is a good way. There are probably several really good ways to do it. So there's room and, and space in there to sort that out. But God's people regularly get together and they remember him purposely through a lesson that he designed. A symbol and a metaphor that he designed. Helps us to remember him. Helps us to stick with him. Help us to keep from wandering because of our forgetfulness and therefore our ungratefulness. Number seven. If you're going to be a church, the minimum bar, we have to gather under qualified biblical leadership. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Ephesians 4, 1 and 12. By the way, for each and every one of those six other things I've said so far, I got Bible scripture. But I, I would just be tossing you addresses, um, and, and I'm trying to take um, literally a sermon that ought to be um, really a series of sermons in itself. I'd like for you to have the notes. We'll sort out. If you want me to share it, great. Um, or we can put it on the website or something. But um, if you want these addresses, these are coming from the Bible. Um, we must gather under qualified biblical leadership. So regardless of how diverse the many views of how churches are supposed to organize, whether you're supposed to have leaders or not, whether you're supposed to be like the, the Quakers or the Shakers of the uh, uh, 1718, early 1900s, where it was all egalitarian, there was no leadership, everyone had the same authority and everything, right? Uh, or, or whether or not you're like some sort of high church, Episcopalian or Presbyterian or, or Catholic or something, where there's a very clear and concrete and sturdy um, echelon and series of leadership and who has what authority to do what. Regardless of where you land, there's, there's many diverse views. What do you even call the leaders? Are they pastors? Are they bishops? Are they elders? Deacons? What do the deacons do, right? All I'm telling you is it's manifestly clear that there's an undeniable design from God in his word that as ch church is supposed to be blessed by good, Christ-like, qualified leadership. Regardless of what you're going to call them, we can talk about that. 
but the church must be led. And if the church is going to be led, again, th those commands in the Bible that you can't obey unless you're part of the church, like, hey, if you're in Christ, then you need to submit to and trust and obey your leaders, your pastors, right? And don't make it hard on them, because what, is, what profit does it get you if you make it hard for them to serve you and lead you? You're hurting yourself. You're robbing yourself, right? You, you can't submit to any pastor if you don't have one, because you don't have a church. You're not part of a church. And if, you're, and if the Bible has that command, that in any and every way that the Bible would say and definitely limit the authority that I as a pastor have, within that scope, to that degree, if, if, you're if, if you're expected to obey me and I'm not any better than you, then it, the church is, it better have confidence that this is a guy whose character, whose character and his trustworthiness is worth being obeyed or listened to and trusted, submitted to. Right? Leaders of the church, you have to have them, and they need to be qualified. It takes time. We take it seriously. The church ought to. All right, so listen. I have confidence to say that those seven things, those are the minimum activities, the doings that God calls his church to. Okay? I'll say them one more time. I really don't want to review them because I don't want to tempt those of you who are note takers to, oh, very good. I need to go back to my notes because I'm writing them down. Uh, I, don't, I love that some of you are built that way. Okay, that, that's helpful to you. But I just, I don't want you to focus on note taking today. I want you to focus on listening and hearing and receiving wherever, whatever, whenever it shows up in today's message that might be good for you. And I, I hope that that just clings to you. Okay? The minimum view of the church, if you're, this is what we do, this is who we are. We've we got to be Christians. We're baptized and obey the Lord. We, we regularly assemble. And our primary chief end and purpose is to worship God. And our, our central nourishment of our lives as a church is God's word. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering him. We gather under qualified biblical leader, leaders. That's pastors, yes, men, but also biblical leaders, women, godly women. If a group, listen, if any group of Christians isn't doing these things, or, at least, or in the very least, if they're not trying to, if they're not reaching toward moving into them, then those people, that group of Christians, ought to be very careful and cautious in calling themselves a church. My confidence comes from the Bible and not my opinion or views on what a church is or isn't. I've really been trying to bind and restrict myself trying to remove my expectations and views and feelings about how churches are supposed to be, right? This, this is why there, there, are, there are things called, organizations called parachurch ministries, parachurch organizations. And, and those ministries, though, though so many of them have been terrific blessings, unbelievable gifts, not just to the church, but to their communities, to the globe, to the lost, a parachurch organization is not a church. An example of these, if you know any of these names, uh, Campus Crusade, or InterVarsity, or The Navigators, or Young Life Ministries, or Desiring God Ministries. Those are extraordinary, long-term, helpful, beneficial, godly ministries. They're organizations, but they, they if, for all who are in those organizations, employed by them, serve, volunteer, or have been served by them, no one can take any of those parachurch organizations and let it replace or substitute for being 
a member, a committed and participating covenanted member of a local body, the church. So if those seven elements I just listed, those are the minimum qualifications of what a church is. RCC is a church. Restoration City Church is a church. Okay? And that's not like, we're not, it's not even a statement of going, we're a great church. We're doing all those at A+. Plus. I'm just going, we're obeying the Bible and following in, in these things, and, and we are active in these things, and some of these things we do really well. Other things, man, we got a, lot, a long way to go, but we really are, as a church, living according to God's design when it comes to what we're supposed to do. So, okay, so now what? When have we ever known God to be interested in or satisfied by or joyful over the lowest minimum-minded of things? When have we ever known God to go, uh, uh, that'll do. Hooray! Hey, you were only thinking of the least amount of work, the least amount of effort, the least amount of care in order to make sure that you stay out of trouble with me. I'm so proud of you. Angels, do you see them? I mean, a sea's a sea, but that's my kid and I love them. He'll say that, I love you. And you have his approval. But when have you ever had a God, when have you ever seen this God in this book go, I am happy when you are looking for the lowest and the minimum of all that I've designed for your joy, for flourishing, and for my glory. You won't find that God or that attitude in God anywhere in the scriptures. We have a God who is interested, he's excited about he values, he loves perfection, he loves joy, he loves exaltation, he loves passion, he loves fulfillment. He's the God that is excited about and passionate about everything of the greatest and deepest power, meaning, significance, joy, glory. That's his interest. So all the Old Testament laws just tell you about what you can and can't do. Our God deepens that. Jesus goes, no, 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 you guys have been reading the law way too much. You thought that was about what you could say or couldn't say, what you could do, couldn't do, who you could have sex with and who you couldn't have sex with? You thought it was only that? No, it's all about your heart. So I'm telling you, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. If you've looked upon a woman or a man you're not married to with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. He's not passionate about leaving us in a place where the lowest level of expectation is is this a sin? Is this a sin? Am I allowed to do this without getting in trouble? Well, you know, I can do this and he won't be mad. He won't send me to the bad place. He'll still let me go to the good place. He's never been, he doesn't like that heart. And he wants to pull human beings. He wants to pull us, his church, out of that heart and out of the minimum view and into a maximum place. Because he's excited about it. Why does he want us to pull us there? Because he knows, because he's God, that if we can see things and feel things the way he does, then we'll and we'll be happier. And we'll find meaning and hope and glory. Our Lord is interested not simply in a minimum church, but a maximum church. So that in, instead, of, instead of asking and answering and then stopping at the lowest minimum expression of what barely constitutes as a church, so we go, we, 
We're a church? Okay. We're checking the boxes? Okay. God must be super pleased. He's pleased with us. He loves us. He approves of us. But there's a whole bunch of his heart that we're still missing. What we do need is to start there at that minimum so that we can then continue on to ask, what is the maximum view? What is God's maximum design for his church? I want to see what Jesus sees when he looks at and celebrates over Restoration City Church. I want to see what Jesus sees when he looks at our church. I want to see, I want to think, I want to feel about this church, the people that the Lord of the universe calls his bride, his wife. There's not a higher and more honorable, dignified, and valuable name that God calls you than bride. He says that about us, Restoration City Church. Anyone else ever struggle to feel like it's hard to grab a hold of feeling the way about this church that probably Jesus does? Maybe where it makes you question whether or not Jesus probably feels the same way about your church that you feel right now. The way he thinks and the way he knows and the way he feels about our church is infinitely more stable and sturdy and higher than any of us in our depression, our anxiety, selfishness, lostness, suffering. We can't drag his view down, but he wants to pull us up. That's why we need to ask the maximum view. What's his maximum design? He's made unbelievable promises to his bride. He is a husband who protects and preserves his bride. He loves the church. And I'm, I'm definitely talking about big C, capital C, church across the globe, yeah. But I'm, I'm talking, the Bible is talking 100% about Restoration City Church. You sitting in the pews. You who are listening to the Spotify later because you were traveling, you weren't here today. He's made promises. And he's fulfilled promises. He died He laid down his life and died. He he got killed on purpose. For you. For you. Knowing everything about you before you could ever know and find out all these things about you. He died for you. Is my value and feelings toward Restoration City Church, are they at all in alignment with Jesus' view and Jesus' passion? And Jesus' commitment and love and affection for his church. So I want to I know and see his church the way he does. To the extent that it would make more and more and more and more and more and more sense. Over the time of my life here, why exactly he would die for us. Because I'm now seeing his church more and more the way he sees it. We ought to fear, listen, we ought to fear the day on which we yawn. We find ourselves yawning at the bride of Christ, especially assembled, while the Lord stands up and celebrates over her and glorifies her and cherishes her and presents her to himself and the universe and goes, this is my beloved. Because to him, after himself, His church is the most important and beautiful thing 
in the universe. So how could we ever begin to get our heads, our hearts wrapped around God's maximum design for his church? God's maximal design for his church is things like this. We are to know him. We are to see him. We are to know him. We are to love him. We are to enjoy him. And we are to trust him with our lives. His ways are above our ways. His ways are better than our ways. And where my ways depart from his ways, I'll depart from my ways and I'll choose his. God's maximum view and vision for what it is that we are supposed to be and do is that we are to see and know and we are to joyfully embrace the identity he gives us. So when he says, you're my beloved, you're forgiven, you are righteous, you are always approved of and welcome in my presence. I hold nothing against you. I will never turn you away. Because that's who you are. You know what the maximum vision of the church is? A church full of members who believe and accept and embrace what God says in spite of the way we see and feel about ourselves in the world around us. We are to say the words of Jesus to one another and to the world. We are to do the works of Jesus for one another and to the world. We are to do all of these things as good works which God has predestined us to do. We do all these things as ambassadors of Jesus, ambassadors of his guaranteed-to-come kingdom. And that's all a mouthful, and that's very Matt Ford. You can tell much of my preaching formation has been listened, but come from listening and reading from people like John Piper or Tim Keller or other people. So here, last week, I chose a moment to just feed our church a series of scriptures that were uninterrupted. I didn't put those scriptures on the, on the screen either. I just fed those to you. And, and here, what was striking for me is more than several members remarked af- afterwards to me that that moment in last week's sermon was very moving, powerful, and, and, and it was very helpful to you. And so that's not surprising to me, by the way. It's not surprising because there is no, there's no power. There's no other power like the power that one finds in the Word of God. No one can... And, and, and listen... No one can ever guarantee that anyone will ever have any specific or man-intended response when the Bible is read or spoken. I can't guarantee that lightning will always strike you every time a particular pastor or a particular worship team reads the Bible or sings some special song. And, and what happened to you in college or in high school or at the conference or that one particular church one day that you were at, that one Sunday morning, I, I, no one can guarantee that that lightning strikes. The Spirit will move in a demonstrable No one can guarantee that because... Jesus himself says, the Spirit's the wind. He, he blows where he, he wants to go. He's going to do when and what, whenever he wants, right? But listen, I can promise you that no one will ever receive that unique and powerful God-intended experience apart from God's word being spoken, read, heard. So uh, that's what I've always tried to give you. That's what I'll always, that's what I'm going to give you again here. That's what I, I will by God's grace. That, that's what I'm always going to try to give you. To take those things about the maximal vision, that list, that is the, we must do this, and we must do this, and we must be this. And we, let me just take that and show you as a mini sermon within a sermon from God's word, uninterrupted, just where those things are in the way God says it, not the way I say it. Guys, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Look at me. 
unless you want to close your eyes and hear it and pray. It's fine. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. Who's he? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. And in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, our church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from even the dead, so that in everything he would be preeminent. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And all the fullness of God was pleased through him to reconcile all things back to himself, whether they're in earth or in heaven. How does he do it? By making peace through the blood of his cross. So trust in this Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own fallen understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge and honor him. He is the one who can make straight your path. You see, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. I, can't, I said I wouldn't interrupt. You don't become his friend by obeying his commands. But you can have confidence that you are his friend because you can see obedience in your heart, in your, in your life. That's what he's saying. So he says, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I... I now have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I've appointed you that you should go, go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, that it should stay, it should remain and not wither on the vine. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he, he may give it to you. These things I command you. So that you will love one another. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. So therefore, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And people, people don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. But on a stand. Hide it in a bush? Oh no. God wants it to shine. It gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works and then give glory to God who's in heaven. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to be saved? How, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. How are they going to believe in him 
of whom they've never even heard of in the first place. And how are they going to hear any of this without someone preaching it, saying it? And how is anyone going to preach this unless someone sends them? It's written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Your feet are beautiful. As you have the good news. As you carry it. So God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show, he might prove the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not your own doing. That's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. That doesn't want anyone boasting. Restoration City Church is his workmanship, his craftsmanship, his fine, his fine detail work with great care. And we were created in Jesus for good works. We're made and fashioned for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we will walk in them, so that we do them. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Jesus will also do the works that he did. And greater works than the works Jesus did, his people will do. Because he's going to the Father, and he's leaving us here. So whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me in anything in my name, I will do it. From now on, the church, from now on, Restoration City Church, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Jesus according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He wasn't just a dude. Regarded him in the flesh, what did we do? We killed him. We disrespected him. We don't regard him in the flesh anymore. We know who he is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ he has reconciled us to himself. And he's now given us the ministry of reconciliation. Work only that he is authorized and able to do. He now shares the ministry of reconciliation with us who are reconciled. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this very message of reconciliation. So therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal to the world through you, through us. You're his plan. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because it was for our sake he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And all this leads to the end of the Bible when he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
He said, write this down. For these words, they are trustworthy. They're true. And so he said to me, it's done. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning. I am the end. To the thirsty, to the thirsty, I will give him from the spring of the water of life, and I will give it without payment. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my own son. He says again, behold, I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing my recompense with me in order that I might repay each one for what he has done. Why? Because I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, and I am the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the spirit and the bride say, come. And let, and let the one who hears these things say, come, Jesus. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires to take the water of life, let him take it without price. What is Jesus' full, clear, unobstructed view of his church? There's so much there. I'm not going to expect anyone to have everything that's been said in full view like you have a chart or a map or a schematic laid out for now. My prayer is that we've heard him speak today. And you have hopefully an expanded view, a more interesting, a more a deeper, and maybe even if it's a more challenging view of what it means for us to really be a church by God's design, that it would be a challenge that somewhere in there the spirit's going, yeah. Let's go. Let's do that. I can do all things this Christ who strengthens me. What has God designed his church to do? It's good works. That's the simplest way to say it. But if I said it up front, you just hear like, good works, good works, good works, be a good boy, be a good girl. No. I want you to see, I want us to see, we desperately, we desperately need to see and feel and know his church the way he knows it. Good works, that are given to us by Jesus, our God, our master, our savior, our friend. And these are good works that we share and shoulder together as one body, one temple, one family, one household, one beloved bride. So with everything God gives us and calls us to be and do as individual Christians and as individual Christian families and now as his assembled Christian church, God has designed us to take every thought, every feeling, every plan, every word, every deed so that we can become windows that our good works, that our life of worship and trust and enjoying God and obeying him would become windows through which the light of the world that he made us would shine and not so our church would be glorified by the world but the world would see us and the good works that God has given us to do as we do them, regardless of how well we do it. They would see those good works and they would glorify him. That's why I've committed the work of my life to serving, uh, serving Christians, to serving church, serving this church. Uh, 
have no interest whatsoever as a pastor in teaching and leading Christians to take back our traditional or national cultures and values. I have no interest in training Christians to be better Americans or better members of their political persuasion or simply better members of the community. All of those things would be good. I don't hate those things. But that's such a minimalist, low, low thing to aim for. And I want my, I really want my life to matter for something more than just the lowest set of expectations I might try to meet. So I don't have to suffer, so I don't have to sacrifice, so I don't have to work hard, so I don't have to carry too many burdens. No. And I've committed the work of my life to serving the church, to be and become the very Father appointed, the very Christ anointed, the very Spirit empowered, and ambassadorial outpost in a fallen and confused and deceived and condemned world. I want to serve this church. I want to serve our church to help us become an outpost that's planted in this city, in this community, in our neighborhoods, planted in the midst of people who, just like we were before we met Christ, they were they're people blindly groping around looking for meaning and love and healing and redemption and freedom and hope, people who are searching and never finding, no matter how many bottles they empty, no matter how rocking they get their bodies to look, no matter how many dollars they're able to accumulate, no matter how fit and together and organized they can get their family, their wife, their husband, their kids, their home, their decorations, their holiday celebrations, and their cards for those holidays, no matter how well put together they can get that, no matter how many lovers or friends or followers that they can accumulate for themselves, I want to help our church, I want to serve our church to be an outpost, an ambassadorial outpost in a blind world full of people groping for the very thing, looking for the very thing they need, they were created and designed to need. And we would be an outpost amidst those people, helping them, by God's grace, that their hand might finally, in their blindness, lay hold of Jesus who, who gives sight to the blind. And they find the love and the healing and the redemption and the hope and the meaning and the forgiveness that they've been groping around for, looking for at the bottom of bottles or on websites or in their bank accounts. Uh, I've committed the work of my life to working for the maximum church as Jesus sees us. Don't settle. Let's not settle. Restoration City Church, let's not settle for anything less than that. We have and we are and we always will struggle with falling short of that maximum view. But that's not why we, that's no, that's no good reason to lay back and give up and settle into the minimum least thing. None of the excitement, none of the joy, none of the blessing, none of the spiritual growth, none of the hope, none of the meaningfulness that I believe each and every member of our church desperately wants to show up at Restoration City Church. I believe that none of that ever shows up in a church that's willing to settle for the minimum. They never lay hold of it. They never find it. You know why? Because that's not, it's not satisfying. The least amount given, the least amount responsible, the least that I can give, the least that I can do, the least that I can care, the least that I can be burdened by. That's good enough. 
I want you to preach. I want you to teach. I want the church to bring me a ton of the Lord. But I'm really only, I'm, I'm pretty okay if I just kind of leave when I gather with the church, walking away with about a pound. That fullness, that excitement, that hope, that joy. The, yes, the church is a thing. The Lord is on the move. Never shows up for a church that goes, what's the minimum? Okay, that sounds good. I'm really busy. I got a lot on my plate. That's not a, that's not a rebuke. That's a, I want that to be encouragement. I want that to be a vision. The way Jesus sees us and what he's calling us to. And not that we can attain those things ourselves, but because we ask in his name and we are his people and he's made promises, we get, we get to it that by his design, we'd be the people that he dwells with, the people of his good works, so that people, lost people, would glorify God and become his people. I told you that was like three messages. Maybe in some ways a bit heavy, but I also hope that someone, someone, some of you in here are, are, are exiting this message to, today with me into the time of communion. Again, with a broader, deeper, clearer, maybe hopefully more exciting, more hopeful vision of what a tiny little happy meal of a church like us could be in the hands of a God who breaks that sort of thing open and feeds thousands of people. He likes doing that. He likes doing that with us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll do communion. I believe that's what's on my uh, list today, yeah. Lord, Lord, if there's any weight on our hearts today, I pray that it would be the weight of your glory, the weight of your mercy, the weight of your grace, the weight of your patience. Not the weight of your dissatisfaction or resentment that any of us individually are, aren't the kind of people that we ought to be or we're not far, as far along in our lives or that maybe our church Together, we just don't feel like we're the kind of church that you're super excited about. Lord, I pray that you would relieve us of those weight because that's not weight you want to put on us. Lord, let it be the weight of your glory, your mercy, your, your patience, your steadfast love, that you're not disappointed in us, that you're not done with us. And that you are never, you never get tired of beckoning and calling to us and reminding us. You're not upset with the slow pace at which you have to walk with us. You don't resent us for being your children, for your little children. Lord, let that be a beautiful weight on us, Lord. Enhance and broaden our vision. Help us to see and to know and to love and be happy for who you say that you've made us to be, who we are in you. And I pray that you would bear fruit through your good word so that we as a church would bear fruit through your good works in us that you've appointed us to do for your glory, for our, our joy. We love you in your name. In our time of communion, up here.